you. Hey guys, it's Progressive News Network. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. We have an amazing show for you tonight. Oh my God. Um, uh, Greg Palast is here. He will be joining Janine Moloff at uh, uh, the bottom of the next hour. Um, we've also got Cardit Krishnire, who, let's face it, he is our regular special guest at this point. Cardit Krishnire has been doing amazing work on uh, COVID-19 in Florida. So uh, you need to go over to Twitter and you need to follow Kardik Krishnire on Twitter. I will make sure that he gives out his uh, his actual um, at or whatever. Um, but you can also just uh, search for him on Twitter, uh, Kardik Krishnire. And uh, so we're going to talk about with Kardik. We're going to do our COVID update. And there's this uh, kerfuffle that's happened with our governor, Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump. And I want to get the details on that. Uh, Roger Stone is in the news this week because he was uh, his sentence was commuted. I would like to get Cardick to chime in on that. And he also has some thoughts on Black Lives Matter uh, in professional sports. So we're going to get to all of that at the bottom of this hour. Um, let me mention really quick two things. I've got a, a fabulous commentary from Rick Spizak, uh, the show's executive, executive, executive producer and founder and, uh, and, and father figure to all. Uh, he has sent us a, a, a little uh, editorial, some commentary that he recorded while he is on the road. And uh, I wanted to mention before I play that, that we are in the midst of our fundraiser. And if you go to the show notes, there is a click here to donate link. I would so, so, so appreciate it if you could just throw a few, you know, like a cup of coffee our way. That is going to, what is this, what the, what is this doing? Fundraising. Um, we are paying for our streaming service, essentially. So uh, every year, this time of year, we do a little fundraiser. And uh, hopefully people will contribute so that we will be able to continue broadcasting uh, on through 2020 and 2021 um, when, again, in the summertime, I will hit you guys up for some donations. All right. Now, we have got the amazing... How many times can I say amazing tonight? We have, we have Rick Spizak with this uh, recorded commentary from the road so without further ado here is rick hi there i'm here to talk about the next election and a little essay i called the loyal opposition is missing in action where where exactly are democracy's defenders we are told that it was inconvenient to hold him accountable that the timing well just wasn't right and it's true, there was a half-hearted impeachment. Not a lot of pressure. Everybody very polite. No uncomfortable questions raised. But I have to ask, as we approach the next election, when is the right season to oppose tyranny? Why do we stand idly by? Why the resident at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and his crime syndicate over and over offend allies, and embrace our enemies. 
Then they seek to favor and promote an agenda of a myriad of encroaching enemies. When is the right time to say no more? And when is the right time to guarantee our democracy? When anyone watching can see that Republicans are openly reducing the voter rolls, example after example, we see disenfranchised voters across the country lose their right to even participate in the voting process. Anyone watching can see that these same tyrannical forces openly play favorites with polling booth locations and carefully select black box voting systems with no oversight, with no paper trail. Why does the opposition party exert almost no opposition? Who will protect our democracy? And when is the right time? This is an editorial by Richard Spizak, Progressive News Network. Wow. That was powerful. Uh, I'm going to move around some of the things I'm going to talk about. Uh, since Rick opened up with uh, talking about you know, where the loyal opposition is, uh, I, I have a little piece that I want to say about this. Uh, I, I think that this is really important. In the show notes, I have a link to a story called Liberals Are Losing Their Minds Over the Lincoln Project. This is a uh, substack by uh, uh, reporter Luke O'Neill. And he does this weekly uh, uh, weekly missive, I guess you could say. Uh, it's a weekly roundup. And this week, he uh, he did a piece on uh, the Lincoln Project, and if you don't know who they are, that is this uh, group of Republicans that are doing these television ads opposing Donald Trump. So essentially, they've they've raised almost 17 million dollars solely for the purpose of making Donald Trump's life miserable. Which you know, great, more power to him, whatever. Um, but what if I told you that that following what, what Rick just said, you know, Democrats are getting in bed with these Lincoln Project guys. And so, you know, if I just came on and just told you, uh, hey, did you know that the Democrats are actually helping right-wing operatives and the Republican Party rehabilitate itself after Trump? You know, like, like we're doing all this work to to try and bring Trump down. And, 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 and let's say we're successful in that. Do we really want to be empowering the right wing and, and Republican operatives at the same time? Yeah, this is not this is not a good this is not bipartisanship that, that we should be doing. This is not the kind of of work that we should be doing. We should not be uh, uh, working hand in hand with the likes of Rick Wilson and George Conway, who is Kellyanne's husband, Steve Schmidt of MSNBC Republican fame, and Republican campaign operative John Weaver, who uh, worked for uh, John McCain, John Huntsman, John Kasich, and uh, ran Phil Graham. Remember Phil Graham of the uh, uh, Graham Rudman and uh, the uh, all of the uh, getting rid of. Um, Glass-Steagall Act, that was Phil Graham. 
hard right-wing Texas uh, Democrat. I think he switched parties at a certain point. That is who John Weaver is. Now, uh, Luke O'Neill covers a little bit of the Lincoln project here in this sub stack that I have linked up in the show notes. And he says, uh, I thought this was good enough to share with you guys. Uh, he says, um, the president is part and parcel of the entire Republican project and its logical conclusion after five decades of cultivating an increasingly enraged white base filled with economic and cultural grievances for which the GOP has blamed on the uneven but inexorable march to greater equality in American society. All right. I mean, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic freaking sentence uh, to read, but I want you to understand what he's saying here uh, that these people we're empowering these, uh, this is the, this is the center of, this is where this right wing hate and bigotry that, that people are fighting in the streets right now, that this is where it's coming from. And the Democrats are getting in bed with this Lincoln project because, you know, oh, it's just television ads and, and, you know, who's going to turn down 16, $17 million for, you know, this, that, and the other, but, you know, Let's 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 be careful and let's be real, because if the shoe were on the other foot, do you think Republicans would be coming to the Democrats and and, and buttressing uh, a bunch of Democrats uh, for the same reason? I mean, it, it's it, it's it, we are lending ourselves. Democrats are lending themselves to rehabilitating the Republican Party post Trump. And that isn't good. Um O'Neill goes on. The more that liberals refuse to hold, the more that liberals refuse to hold right-wing operatives like the Lincoln Project Brain Trust accountable for their past behavior and contribution to the current state of conservatism in America, the more we will see the rehabilitation of such ghouls and an ongoing scheme by conservatives to push the Overton window even further right and assume the position of moderation. For someone like Rick Wilson to enjoy the social capital afforded by his acceptance by liberals would be unthinkable were there a chance the Democratic Party and its attendant uh, opinion makers had an attention span longer than that of your average goldfish. So, I mean, maybe you don't know who these, who, who these folks are. Um, Rick Wilson is... Uh, just a nasty, nasty guy. He's been around forever. Um, just if you can search his his Twitter feed and find all kinds of nasty, racist stuff. Um, saw some earlier today. Let's see if I was uh, good enough. Yeah. Good. Um, so here's Rick Wilson um, in 2012 uh, talking about Trayvon Martin. And uh, uh, let's see. I miss the Trayvon hoo-ha today. Well, I can really say I've been missing it, Bob. Uh, willfully wrong and overdramatic. Uh, it's the law that killed Trayvon Martin and not uh, uh, George Zimmerman, the, the guy who actually shot him. 
Um, he says, y'all realize, y'all realize Obama just filibustered for four minutes of bullshit on Trayvon, right? Uh, you know, really hates, really hates Trayvon Martin. Uh, three weeks into the Trayvon controversy, uh, this is about the time Al Sharpton starts talking about the, quote, white interlopers or, quote, diamond cutters. This is, this is Rick Wilson. Okay, these are the people that the, the Democratic Party is, is getting in bed with. Um, as gross as that is uh, about Trayvon Martin, he's, you know, you, you, if you think that's bad, you should see his, what he writes about um, Muslims. Uh, there's also pictures of him on his Twitter feed with a, a Confederate. I'm here to talk about the next election. With a Confederate flag on, on his boat. Um, he's just, he's just a nasty, nasty, you know, person to be getting in bed with. Uh we don't need to do that. And we talked a little bit about these neocons and the Republican, the Democrats working with the Republicans last week with Cardick, but I just wanted to bring this up. I just wanted to uh, um, feature this again because I will be coming back to this article by Luke O'Neill uh, because there's, a, there's another piece in there that I want you guys to know about. Now, Part of what we do here every week is we kind of look back on the weekend news and uh, part of the, the uh, what's happening week to week in Florida is we were watching the COVID cases or the case, uh, positive cases of coronavirus uh, increase at a scary rate. Today, over the weekend, when uh, testing rates generally show a decline, you know, because fewer people are getting tested. Uh, Florida racked up 15,300 new cases overnight for today. Um, and that, by the way, shatters the record that New York set on April 3 of 12,274 new cases overnight. Now, this on the same day the Disney World opened, okay? Uh, if you're a Floridian, you've probably seen uh, people posting pictures of what it was like at Disney on their first day opening up. Very few people were, were wearing masks. Uh, it started to rain because it's summer in Florida, and of course it rains. And when it rains, when people are running around outside, what they do is they all run for shelter, you know, and they find the first overhang they can find, and they all stand in there together, all wet and packed like sardines. You know, this is what it's like at uh, at Disney. Um, they're Disney's brain genius branding for their COVID reopening is, quote, together again. <laughs> oh, my God. The family that vacations at Disney together in, during the COVID crisis, uh, I guess, are going to find out how that winds up. Um, honest to God, best wish wishes to everybody. Nobody needs to be... Uh, exposing themselves to this virus and uh, you especially don't need to be doing that uh, 
to go play at Disney. And, you know, we've all got the freedom to make the choices that, that, that we make. Uh, and, of course, these capitalist enterprises are going to open up for business because they want your money. Yeah. Um, and people who paid for uh, yearly passes, like a lot of people do in Florida, uh, they feel compelled to use those passes. And, uh, and you know, they're going out to the, to the attractions. Uh, picking on Disney, but they're not the only one. There's Universal, there's SeaWorld, there's all kinds of things uh, that, uh, that are attracting people out during this, during this crisis. So Florida has become, no lie, Florida has become the epicenter of COVID worldwide. Worldwide. And at the same time, we've got pandemic denialism running rampant, left, right, and center. I see it on the left. I see it uh, amongst uh, uh, no party affiliation types. I definitely see it on the right. Um, it, it, to be fair, you don't see as much of it on the left, but you see a little bit. Uh, I want to get into the psychology of that for, uh, for a second here. Uh, this week, Richard Rose died of, of COVID. Uh, he, or he actually died on July 4th. Richard Rose was 37 years old. When he died, the fact that he died went viral on social media, no pun intended. And the reason why uh, Richard Rose's death was notable is because uh, something he posted on Facebook in April had gone viral. He said, quote, let me make this clear. I'm not buying a mask. I've made it this far by not buying into the damn hype. He's not buying into the hype. He, he, he didn't want to buy into the hype. Now, that's, that's I understand why people don't want to buy into hype. I understand that flex, right? You know, we all get it. We've all been there. You know, we don't, we don't want to go where everyone is going, you know. But really, with COVID, literally, let's not go where people are going. Let's not go to Disney. Let's not go to Universal. Um, so people have been dunking on him. You know, now that he's dead, you know, he he posted this stuff about how he wasn't going to buy into the to the hype. He gets sick, he dies. And now people are dunking on him and it's in really bad taste. And I don't want uh, I don't want anyone to view what I'm saying here in that light. I think that that is absolutely uh, uh, vulgar and grotesque and just don't do it um, because. You know, people are coming at this from, from different directions. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in Luke O'Neill's Substack is he, he talks about uh, being someone who, uh, who has a chronic condition. And I have a chronic condition. And what he said here really hit home with me. Um, and I think that this lends itself, uh, lends a lot of explanatory power to uh, – why people are having trouble with the hype, you know, with the hype around uh, around COVID, and what it is, what, what he says is that uh, there's a psychology of COVID denialism. Um, people think it's all a ruse to take our freedoms. Uh, they they uh, people should know better, um, but here's why they don't know better. Here's here's the psychology. Unless you've had a life-altering illness where you've had to be in the hospital for a long time and you faced your mortality, uh, apparently there's something that 
um, you might not understand that the healthcare system, that doctors are not going to, they're not going to save you, okay? Because there's there's something you learn as a chronic person who spent a lot of time in a hospital, and that is that it is a miracle if you get in and out of the hospital without getting worse, you know, without being mistreated really badly, you know? Um, I hate that that's the case. Our healthcare system is broken for a lot of reasons having to do with the uh, for-profit model. But I think that the for-profit model has also done something else to our healthcare system, which is just, you know, broken its, its heart. You know, it's broken, whatever was at the center of it. So Luke O'Neill writes, um, if you're an able-bodied person who's who's never, you know, faced your mortality and been in the hospital in this way, he says that you're you're used to living in a body that doesn't let you down, a body that recovers easily from illness and probably doesn't get ill very often. Um, that's not my baseline uh, assumption about my own disabled body because it's not been my experience at all. Uh, able-bodied people operate under an assumption that if they were to contract COVID, medical professionals would do everything they can. They've not had the traumatizing medical experiences that I have. They've not been ill for years and had uh, doctors give zero shits. <laughs> Their baseline assumption, this is able-bodied people, their baseline assumption is that doctors can and will fix things. That, again, has not been my experience. Also goes without saying that they don't have all the fears of being disabled in this pandemic and thus being seen as expendable, which is an opinion legitimized by our government. Okay. Uh, when you've been really, really sick, when you're a chronic uh, illness person, you uh, chances are you've been through the ringer with the healthcare system. You know, number one, that your body is is not always your friend. You know that um, that uh, uh, that the healthcare system is it can injure you more than it hurts you, and you also know that um, once you're once you're sick, you're you're seen by society as less than you're seen as more expendable you know you you become one of the people that uh uh that are expected to perish you know you're you're considered to be weak and uh there was a study out by Kaiser Permanente today that talked about teachers having to go back to school in August and that 24% of teachers have a condition, have a chronic condition that makes them more susceptible to COVID and more susceptible to dire consequences from COVID. And the kinds of uh, conditions that make you more susceptible to having worse outcomes are uh, uh, having an uh, a, a, a compromised immune system, which could be from an uh, autoimmune problem, or it could be from uh, treating cancer or something like that. Having a BMI over 40, which is a lot, like I'm overweight, I'm not BMI 40 overweight. Um, uh, what were some of the other ones? They'll come to me. But you know what? 
if you're a chronic person, you already know it. You know what those are. There's a, a, just people who have autoimmune mis- dysfunction are a huge slice of the demographic, the general demographic. So Kaiser Permanente says 24% of teachers who are being asked to go back to work are in this high-risk category. And they also said in a study that that 24% is an exact mirror for the rest of society. So if you're a parent and not a teacher, but you're sending your kids to school, you, you also are part of that 24%. You either are, you know, the, the seven and a half and 10 who are not high risk or the 25% who are at risk, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, when Cardit comes back. We'll pick back up on this COVID thing. But really quick, in the last few minutes before Cardit comes on, I want to mention that there is a uh, uh, there is a a movement to challenge Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and there's a, a lot of tweet storming going on right now, a lot of social uh, media kind of activity around um, Shahid Buttar, who is the challenger to Nancy Pelosi in a primary in San Francisco for her house seat. And I know that a lot of people think that that's just bizarre. Just, you know, like, why would you want to go after Nancy Pelosi? She's like got all this power and blah, blah, blah. Well, Like it says in the title of the show, we have a looming depression. And David Dayan this week did a fantastic story at the American Prospect, and that is in the show notes as well. A leader without leading. Nancy Pelosi is an expert at obtaining power, but what does she do to use it? All right. Now, anytime you're talking about House leadership, you're talking a little bit inside baseball, but I think you guys are are either, you know, up to speed on this. Uh, we have a really educated audience when it comes to uh, political workings. And if you're not, then this is this is a good place to start because this is this is the, the easy stuff. This is the stuff that it's it's really easy to grasp onto. Um, now Nancy Pelosi has pretty much uh, done all of the legislation for COVID uh, by herself because remember that the uh, the, the Congress that the, the Senate uh, was was all in place, but House members didn't come back, and so Nancy Pelosi acted as the uh, um, titular head. You know, she was the 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 head of the party, she stayed there, she she worked on all the legislation, and then uh, the rest of the members of the House got to sign off on it. So what begins happening in two weeks, in two weeks, we're going to start seeing the effects of this depression really kick in. It's going to be Nancy Pelosi's uh, cross to bear here. This is, she's, she's going to own this. Um, just to give you a taste of, of what's going on with uh, Nancy Pelosi, please go read this article, A Leader Without Leading, David Dayan in The American Prospect. Uh, he says, uh, when, a, when economists advise sending every American a check, Pelosi shot that down, arguing against money for millionaires. 
This culminated in a means-tested $1,200 stimulus payment. You only got the money if your earnings were under $100,000 a year based on your earning data as far back as 2018, which means if you lost your job since then, so too, too bad, so sad. Now here's the inside baseball part that I think you really need to know. Meanwhile, Pelosi took the lead on, on the initial smaller bills. Remember, there were three or four small bills before the CARES Act. She allowed Mitch McConnell to write the vehicle for economic relief known as the CARES Act. McConnell casually drew up a $4.5 trillion money cannon corporate bailout, which rapidly rescued the investor class before it was even spent. Who drafts the baseline legislation makes a big difference. If Pelosi had written the CARES Act, it could have included such ideas from her caucus as government-provided payroll support, increased food stamps, guaranteed vote by mail, yada, 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 yada. All these things are running out in two weeks. Now, the House, Congress doesn't even go back in session for another week. So we got two weeks until all of everything starts hitting the fan. Eviction moratorium stop. Uh, uh, increased SNAP payment stop, increased uh, um, unemployment stop, all of that stops. While at the same time, state and local governments are being starved. So we're getting ready to see bankruptcy on the level of your, uh, on the municipal level and on the state level. It, this is not going to be pretty. There is not money to run the government. You thought those those government shutdowns that used to happen, you know, on the federal level, we thought that was bad. It's going to be happening all across the United States at the state and local level. We could lose another 5.1 million jobs on top of the 30 million jobs that we've already lost. So we are, we are in a really, really bad place. And with the Republicans taking the wheel on this, here's the kind of things they're talking about. A, a second stimulus check means tested for those making only $40,000 or less. Uh, this would at least get money to about 80 million households. But uh, if it was absurd to means test stimulus payments in March, when a few million had lost their jobs, it's even more so now at 30 million. Uh, the income threshold will be based on last year's tax re return. And again, if you lost your job, that's a problem. Also, there is talk about dropping unemployment from $200 uh, to $200 a week from $600 a week. Uh, this would cut more than 30 million incomes by close to half depending on the state share. In Florida, for example, where the maximum benefit is $275, we're going to experience a 46% cut. So what do you think happens to an economy if you cut incomes by half for close to 20% of the workforce? Hmm? You get less spending and you get more unemployment. At the same time, all these eviction moratoriums are running out. We're also going to see a lot more homeless folks. And um, I want to wrap this up really quick. Kardak, I see that you're on the, on the line. I want to, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and bring you on. I'm going to finish this up really quick. Um, these failures at the congressional level with regard to how much stimulus and, and how uh, economic relief happens for Americans. These are going to be Pelosi's alone because she uh, 
deliberately slowed allowing members to vote remotely or through proxy while lawmakers were locked down at home. And because of this, during the crucial months of March and April, Pelosi became a one-woman House of Representatives, unilaterally writing legislation or negotiating with Republicans and presenting the finished product to House members, take it or leave it. This effectively disenfranchised hundreds of millions of Americans and limited the Democratic caucus to issuing press releases while Pelosi did the work of governing. It was a power grab, and it doesn't look like it was towards any kind of goal. Um, I'm going to leave it right there. Uh, I feel like uh, oh, I got to mention one last thing because I feel like this is the uh, this is the big this is the big quote in David Dayan's piece. At the very end, he says, uh, "And Nancy Pelosi's uh, leadership." Progressives who dream big are to be sat in a corner, and anti-government conservatives are to be bargained with and mollified. And this is what this is exactly what Rick Spizak was talking about. Um, she says that uh, Pelosi hosts a conference an annual ideas conference at her own vineyard for a group of elite donors. Uh, that's who gets to, uh, to scale the fortress she has built around her desiccated ambitions. Oh, David Dan, you're just after my own heart right here. And finally, he says, this is the key. Her thoughts today on activism date back to something she said during her very first campaign during the Reagan administration. She said about activists, she said, someday they will realize just how insignificant they are. If you don't read that article for anything else, read it for that. Read it for the history. Read it for uh, understanding uh, who Nancy Pelosi is, where she comes from. And by the way, she cut a deal uh, that makes it so she can only be speaker through 2022. So no matter what, her she's the, the clock is running out. She only has two more years if we keep the house. So having said that, uh, I feel amazing that I was able to get through all that news. Before bringing Kardik Krishnayer on, Kardik, welcome. How, how are you? I am pretty good. Uh, uh, I mean... I don't know if you heard that uh, COVID is soaring in Florida and we broke all kinds of records. So while I feel like I'm doing pretty good health wise and uh, you know, I'm feeling a little, I'm kind of feeling myself today. uh, I feel like the world's falling apart around us. So tell, tell us about it. What is going on with COVID this week in Florida? Yeah. Another, another bad week, although, um, the thing that's positive tonight is I can report, and I've just tweeted that ICU beds um, are there are more ICU beds available in the state than there were 72 hours ago. We were we had critical shortages in ICU beds. I would say from about Tuesday morning, and and, and the beds were disappearing pretty quickly until uh, Thursday evening. Um, and what we were seeing was particularly in counties of like uh, Pasco. Lee County, uh, Bay County, which is Panama City, uh, the second tier, Marion County, which is Ocala, these kind of medium-sized counties, which have a couple hundred thousand people in them. Now, Lee is closer to a million people. There's about 800,000 people. But the non-metropolitan counties that had a lot of people and have 
um, you know, one or two hospitals with ICU facilities in their, in their counties were getting overwhelmed pretty easily. What we had seen in the urban counties um, were that um, there were hospitals that were filling up. Uh, Hillsborough County and Broward County both had some problems um, during that Tuesday to Thursday period, but were never totally overwhelmed. But Miami-Dade, um, Orange, Palm Beach, um, Pinellas, they were all able to kind of get um, ICU patients and non-COVID ICU patients move from one hospital to another, uh, create some facilities with more beds uh, to, to try and alleviate this, uh, this problem. In addition, we had a situation where we were running low on hospital workers, uh, hospital workers for uh, critical care units in the state throughout much of the week. That shortage has not been alleviated. So when you have that sort of shortage, Brooke, you have less ICU hospital beds available. You can take a census of hospital beds in the state, ICU hospital beds in the state, and say we have the ability to have upwards of 6,500 beds. But at times this week, because of a lack of workers, that number dropped to 58 or 5,900, and that, that, that throws the entire grid off, essentially. And uh, we were very close to uh, a meltdown, and I'm, I'm happy to report um, that the critical care side of um, our hospitals in Florida are doing slightly better. They're not doing great. I don't want to make it, make it sound like, oh, I know the worst is over, but we were – and I know the national media has reported pretty extensively on this also after I started tweeting about it and some other people started talking about it as well on social media. We were very close to a system overload um, where we were going to be out of hospital beds and we were going to be in the same position as Italy was, northern Italy was, early in the COVID crisis there where doctors, emergency room doctors were going to, and ICU doctors were going to have to make decisions about who got ventilators and who didn't, who lived and who died. We avoided it. So that is good news. The bad news is the cases continue to rise in the state. Um, but we were close to an absolute meltdown this week, which I don't know if people realize how close we were to that. And um, we pulled out of that. One other point I want to make is that um, Governor DeSantis has completely mishandled this situation. He's making an ass out of himself, excuse my language. The one thing he has done well is he has, seen, he has put a lot of emphasis on nursing homes, and we're seeing fewer nursing home deaths. Um, in the state this week than we've seen in, in three months in terms of uh, COVID-related nursing home deaths. That, having been said, this week we had the most deaths we've had in the state from COVID. So what does that mean? Younger and healthier people, previously healthier people, are dying. So that is not good at all for, for the rest of us. So, okay, so at the same time we've got, we just broke a record with uh, 15,300 new way, cases. That's, record, that's not just Florida record. That's a record for any U.S. state. Not even New York or New Jersey has that number in a single day during the height of the pandemic. Unbelievable. And the, the Hill did a story a couple of days ago. I want to say it was three days ago about how Florida is now the world's epicenter. We are the, the, yeah. the this is where, Perhaps you know, COVID is... Most new cases, we have the per capita, we, we're, we're number one. So, you know, and all of that was before right. Disney opened up. Yeah, and so Disney reopening, there's already been, and, and, I, and I give, I have to give Disney some credit. I'm, I tend to be pretty critical of them, but the protocols they put in place have, um, 
have unfortunately, I, I should say unfortunately, maybe it's fortunate, maybe you don't want these people in business, have fortunately turned a lot of people off. There were people who, who went yesterday who said, oh, they're not going back because they're, you know, they're taking temperatures, they're making, you know, they're not letting lines queue up, you know, they're, they're being very restrictive about where you can go. Um, so uh, I was happy to hear that. I've heard Universal is a little less stringent, um, and I've been covering what's been going on inside uh, the bubble at Major League Soccer, which is at Disney, and they have been very, very stringent, but there have been, I tell you what, this so-called bubble is not, uh, we can get into that uh, another time, but there, there, there seems to be some holes in the bubble because um, hospitality workers come and go, right? They don't live on premises. So this is also the same thing with, with Disney as an amusement park also. Now, um, I, I have to point this out, and I know this will upset a lot of uh, mainstream Democrats, and I know people are upset about the article I wrote today on Squeeze, which talked about all the mistakes Democrats have made. I mean, I really hammered the Republicans on COVID, but I say, look, you know, don't, don't, don't think Democrats are white knights. You know, they're, they have the moral high ground because the Republicans are just wrong about everything related to this, to this, um, uh, to this virus. But um, even on school reopening, the Democrats can't seem to, can't seem to take a, a position without clearing it with the teachers union first. Um, Jerry Demings, who's the mayor of Orange County, whose uh, wife is a, on the short list for Joe Biden, uh, uh, to be uh, his vice presidential uh, uh, pick, um, has, from my perspective, been very disappointing in how he has addressed uh, MLS and NBA coming to Orange County as well as the reopening of Disney and Universal. Um, and seems to be so committed to allowing those, those things to go forward and obviously, MLS has already kicked off, and, and they did a great thing. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. They did a wonderful thing um, uh, at the beginning of their tournament. But um, they, uh, these things have started, right? And Universal's open, and, and, and Disney's open. Uh, two Disney amusement parks have opened. The other two, uh, Epcot and, and uh, MG, or whatever MGM's called now, the studio thing, will open uh, next week or, or during the course, middle of this coming week. Uh, Animal Kingdom and Magic Kingdom are open. Very Demings and the other Democrats in Orange County, quite frankly, have uh, um, really, I think, played enabler to this. And they don't want to make tough decisions that would protect citizens as a whole. And, I'm, and I think this is the case with Democrats who are governing in local municipalities and local counties all over the state. I am, I am outraged by the um, react, react, reactivity and slowness um, and really kind of lax enforcement of ordinances by the Democrats in Broward County, where I live, Fort Lauderdale area. Uh, we have nine commissioners. We obviously have the second largest population in the state. We have nine county commissioners. They're all Democrats. It's a 9 0 commission. Every county constitutional office is held by a Democrat. And we are not taking the, the state, the step that our neighbors uh, to the South Miami Dade, who have a you know, slightly worse situation than us, you know, we, we're adding 2,000 cases a day, they're adding 3,000. So, right? I mean, we're kind of the global epicenter now, the state of Florida, uh, we're not taking the effective steps they're taking, and we're not even taking the effective steps anymore that Palm Beach County, north of us, has started to take. Palm Beach was very slow. Um, they, their cases weren't as high previously, but then, and they didn't pass the mask ordinance for the longest time. We had one. We've had one since March, thankfully. But once Palm Beach passed the mask ordinance last month, they, one, sent every citizen of Palm Beach County in the mail to masks and two basically said, 
these are your masks. If you have your own masks, you can wear those. We're enforcing. We're going to find you. Okay? You're, if, if, you're, if you're in public and you're not wearing a mask, you know, that, that's a citation. Broward County, they haven't enforced this at all. Um, and we've had Democratic elected officials in this county who prior to the, to, uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're still in phase one, by the way. Orange County, which we talked about and where you live, you guys are in phase two. We, we never went to phase two. But we had a number of Democrats in this county who were asking the governor, because remember, the governor, to his credit, I mean, there are some things, DeSantis has done a whole lot wrong, but there are one or two things he's done right. One of the things he did do right was identify that there were more coronavirus cases still in South Florida when the rest of the state went to phase two. So these three counties, Palm Beach, Miami-Dade, and Broward, never moved to phase two. We're, we're still in phase one. Um, but there were some Democrats down here who started to lobby the governor. Hey, you know, we've got the situation under control. Our bars need to be open. Our restaurants need to be uh, ha- have more capacity. Can, can you open up? These were Democrats doing this. These are the same Democrats who, by the way, um, I am sure will be, you know, talking about how vigilantly they fought Trump and DeSantis on coronavirus six months from now when no one remembers this. So um, I think that's important for people to remember. I mean, there's been some some horrible, uh, I wouldn't say horrible behavior. Again, it's not a false equivalency. The Republicans have been a lot worse, but just because the Republicans have been terrible and have put us in this mess where we're uh, the embarrassment, we're a laughing stock globally, as we talked about the previous time I was on this show, and we've lost our global standing, that doesn't mean the Democrats somehow um, are, uh, are doing a great job. And I know uh, you, you, you spent a, a time talking about Speaker Pelosi. I would put her in the middle of this. She had all the whole entire month of February. She did nothing about coronavirus. Okay, so uh, Trump's terrible, right? There's no question about it. But the excuse that because the president didn't do anything, somehow uh, Pelosi and Schumer, who never mentioned the virus until it became fashionable, even though it was in the country, it was in Seattle. Um, you know, I have a good friend, and well, you know her too, that works that lives in Seattle. He wasn't going to work for uh, uh, from early February onward because the coronavirus was, was spreading there, and their governor, James Lee, had done a good job. Uh, Joe Biden, who's the, the nominee for president, he was talking about it in Iowa. In January, he talked about coronavirus. But Nancy Pelosi never, never, uh, never, did, never talked about the issue for a month after Inslee and Biden talked about it. Okay? And she's the actual leader of the party. Let's, not, let's keep that in mind. So just add that to your list about Nancy Pelosi. Will do. So you also mention in the article about uh, Trump and DeSantis. Uh, he, you, you say, um, unfortunately, this week, uh, more politicization, politicization, well, that's hard to say, followed the school announcement. So opening schools, and it looks like Trump and DeSantis kind of got in a, in a tussle. What's going on there? Yeah, so there's a... There's a a lot of uh, intrigue and excitement about uh, that in Florida chattering classes. Um, so obviously DeSantis roared the Republican convention to Florida. He and Lenny Curry, who is the mayor of Jacksonville and the former uh, chair of the Florida, uh, of the Republican Party of Florida. Um, then Trump, and, and they're behind, they need to raise money, obviously, they just convention. Then Trump hires Susie Wild to be his Florida State Director. Long story short, Susie Wild is a veteran GOP operative, uh, really connected Rick Scott Republican, who um, has had a really bad falling out with Governor DeSantis. 
And at that point, DeSantis instructed his fundraising team not to lift the finger for the RNC. And now we're weeks from the convention. I don't think they can pull it. They've already moved it from Charlotte to Jacksonville. I don't think they can move it out of Florida now. I think they're stuck um, dealing with this situation. I don't know if there was any um, conversation with Trump in the state on Friday with him and DeSantis perhaps resolving this. Um, yeah, it, 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 it threatens to blow up in the face of the entire RNC. There is a, uh, there is, and look, the thing we find now in this uh, political world is because both parties are are controlled by by uh, corporate and moneyed interests. Most of the fight uh, fights that go on internally in in, in political parties are um, are based around personality, right? And 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 and, and who hires who. They're not based around any sort of ideological um, uh, principle, right? There isn't, there isn't any difference between Trump and DeSantis on key issues, with the exception of the issue of, of, of the environment and, and, and the Everglades. But that, that doesn't have anything to do with this, right? So there's not, mm-hmm. there's not any logical difference, but this is a personality clash. And we see this constantly. You and I have talked for years about this in the Democratic Party, that when you, when you take values away, you take ideology that way, and you make everything about personality, and, and I don't like this one, and I don't like that one, and the interpers- interpersonal relationships between people in a political party or in a political politicized organization become kind of immature and childish. This is what you get. So there is some sort of stack going on now, and uh, uh, resident Republicans say that, you know, it, it, they've never seen this sort of thing before, and that... Uh, they're blaming DeSantis, right? Because obviously they want the convention to go off without a hitch. And they're basically saying DeSantis is acting like a little child. Now, um, I would believe that if the, if the guy on the other side was anyone other than Donald Trump. But I, I just Trump's personality, I have, to, I have to believe he initiated it. And DeSantis, DeSantis is kind of, a, 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 and we've seen it, a flippant, immature person when he, when he wants to be. Um, and certainly Trump is almost always that way. So there you go. Well, uh, this reminds me, it's a, it's a little adjacent. Uh, I had, I had copied down to, uh, tweets of the week just to share, just in, in case I needed to. And this, this seems to apply. Uh, this is a, an account, uh, Gallifrey and Jedi, which I'm sure is a, uh, uh, Star Wars reference says uh, Republicans colon this isn't a serious problem and we aren't going to do shit about it and then he says Democrats colon this is a serious problem and we aren't going to do shit about it yeah, but a boom politics of personality exactly exactly and and you you know. Uh, when we're dealing with a virus, when we're dealing with COVID, it's uh, this is science. This is science by nature. We're dealing with, uh, you know, science doesn't care about what party you belong to, and it doesn't care about, um, you know, Trump and all of the and DeSantis and all of these uh, uh, things that are very important to us. Well, I, I guess you could say. And we've seen over and over again the political politicization of our approaches to these things, whether it's on the side of um, Richard Rose, who I mentioned earlier, who uh, didn't want to buy into the hype of COVID. And so 
I might not have been as careful as he should have been and, and died from it. You know, that's freaking tragic. Uh, the, the politicization is something it is people are playing it out personally. It's not just being played out on this, on the um, political stage or the national stage. We're each participating in it and we got to stop, man. It's not, it's not healthy, literally. Yeah, it's not. And look, I, again, there's, there's no question Trump and DeSantis and uh, uh, Rick, not Rick Perry, sorry, uh, uh, Greg Abbott and, uh, and all of the, uh, the Republican governors around the country, with the exception of Mike DeWine and Charlie Baker uh, and, and, and Larry Hogan, with those three exceptions, have been horribly uh, 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 complicit in allowing this virus to spread. They have been incompetent in how they've administered it, and they've made this country look, become a laughing stock among major industrialized nations. That does not mean uh, reflectively the other side has done everything perfectly and they've been vigilant and they, they, they've been fighting the good fight. Yeah, there's some Democrats who have been fantastic in this. Um, there are others that have also, just as I, as I outlined early, and, and generally the ones with power, whether they're uh, uh, local elected officials like Jerry Demings or, or uh, uh, the people we have here in, in, in Broward County, um, or whether they're uh, uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who only uh, jumped on the issue after impeachment was over and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' primary challenge was to be back in the primaries and, and, uh, and that they could safely then uh, use this against Trump. Um, you know, what, what, the time when, when things could have been done at the congressional level and awareness could have been raised on coronavirus before it became uh, uncontainable in this country, uh, the, the congressional Democrats did not anything. That doesn't mean congressional Democrat, and they did not do anything. Again, I will dial it back and say Joe Biden did, and he's the presidential nominee, and now he's the leader of the party. Uh, so that's very good and very positive. But at the time, Biden wasn't the leader of the party. He wasn't even leading in the poll. Uh, well, he, he was leading in the polls, but he, he was, you know, running out of money, all that stuff. People were predicting he'd be out of the race soon, and someone else would get nominated. And the people who did have the power within the party did nothing about it. So um, I don't want to harp on this forever, but that, that is the way I view it. Well, and, you know, this is reaching a, a point of critical mass because we've got two weeks until uh, our economic uh, stimulus from the last four bills when all of the unemployment uh, enhancements and SNAP enha- enhancements, when all of that starts running out and the uh, eviction moratoriums are starting to run out. Now, what's also happening yeah. is Nancy Pelosi is is saying, yeah, we are going to have uh, the, the fifth bill out by the end of July, but they're only getting back into session on the 21st of July. So, so all of next week, they're out, the 13th through the 17th, and then they come back, I guess, the, the 20th through the 24th, but you know everyone travels on the on the Monday, so really they don't get in until the twenty first. Yeah. And so between the twenty first and the thirty first, the House and the Senate are going to agree on a bill in which they are trillions of dollars apart on agreeing on. Yeah, yeah, and also remember that the House generally doesn't work on Fridays either. Okay, it's really the Tuesday to Thursday mm-hmm. clause. The Senate a little different. Um, not, not much different, but the Senate will work Friday, so will work Monday afternoon. Um, so, yeah, there's not much time. And uh, um, you've got all kinds of people's faith 
um, tied into that bill at a time when coronavirus in this country is a lot worse than uh, um, in the uh, in the uh, um, rest of the world, in, in a lot, lot worse than it was in March when they passed all this legislation. Um, and I have to say also, uh, in the state of Florida, we have 22 million people here. We've added more cases in the last week in the state of Florida than the entire European Union and the United Kingdom combined. So um, we're, we're, we're in desperate shape. I mean, it is, it, the idea that, okay, well, we don't have to give this relief because people can go back to work now. Well, yeah, I guess you technically can go back to work, but if you go back to work, you're, 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 you're condemning whatever percentage of them to some sort of major respiratory illness. It's a possibility of contracting a major respiratory illness. And um, the idea that we should just be looking at death rates, I think we discussed this the last time we were on the, I was on the show, is, 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 is absurd. I know several people who have had this virus, okay, and I have the, the, the good fortune and the bad fortune of that because, obviously, it gives me more insight into what's going on. It's also made me much more vigilant and serious about this and been more difficult for me personally. I know so many people who've, been, who've gotten the virus. Um, I have uh, you know, a friend who I'm recording, who I just well, really supported his podcast with on, um, on Tuesday, Neil Blackman, who was in the, in the hospital, was in the, uh, uh, the ITU, at Holy Cross Hospital here in Fort Lauderdale, but um, recovered, has, well, has recovered now two and a half months later to the point where um, he's working, et cetera. But he has to, and we recorded a podcast, you know, same sort of like 40-minute uh, block, 45-minute block that we're doing here, Brooke, and he has to stop. And this is a guy that was in perfect health um, in March when he was infected, and he got out of the hospital. And, and those of you who follow me on Twitter know, know about his story, and he's uh, – you know, he's involved politically. He's been in uh, um, you know, Pat, Pat, Patrick Murphy's campaign, et cetera, for U.S. Senate um, and uh, local Democratic politics. He, the, I, you know, he, he's having these respiratory problems still to where, you know, we couldn't record or, or we couldn't do like live to tape. You know, we would take breaks because he can't speak for 45 minutes straight. Oh, my God. But that is – that. Knows, so we don't know if it'll be permanent, right? It's a couple months. So uh, uh-huh. is he going to be like this a year from now? I, I don't, I'm not saying for sure he will be, but there's a possibility. So for those who say, oh, well, he lived, whatever. Now he's back at work. Okay. Well, and respiratory, uh, on chronic respiratory symptoms are not the on, only ongoing uh, chronic problems people are having with COVID. There's also uh, neuroimmunity and clotting uh, issues. It's a very, very odd mix of of symptoms. Yeah. So, I mean, this this nonsense, this this absurdity that somehow um, everybody lives and, you know, people are saying, oh, well, if you get sick, don't go go to work then. You know, stay at home if you feel sick. This is this is just absolute nonsense. This isn't the cold. This isn't um, the seasonal flu. And then the people who say, "Well, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of Americans die." I don't know. I'm just making up a number. Uh, thousands of Americans mm-hmm. die in, in, in automobile accidents every year. I mean, they 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 have. And these were arguments that libertarians used to use. And it's funny. It's not the libertarians anymore making these arguments. The libertarians. Strangely, the libertarians seem to be more sensible about these sort of things. It is these MAGA Trump Republicans, led by the president himself. This is what makes it so alarming. But, um, 
who are making these sorts of myopic, absolutely anti-intellectual arguments about everything. And then you turn on these channels, like uh, you turn on these these, these uh, programs on Fox News, like Jesse Waters, the guy who a couple of years ago I said he was the guy that seems to his goal in life was to make racism cool again. It seems like he succeeded, right? Right. And he's got his he's got his man in the White House now. So. Uh, people like this, you know, making these arguments about how this is like the flu and um, and how well we've done and and not and again, this goes back to on the right and this goes back to the whole conversation we had the previous time I was on this show that the U.S. now has isolated itself globally in geopolitics under under President Trump. The people who are now supporting Trump, the people on Fox News, the people in all of these conservatives—I don't even want to call them conservatives; they're not really conservatives—in this Trump world this MAGA world, this all-white world, they don't even know what goes on in the rest of the world. They have no, they have no intellectual curiosity or interest in anything outside of uh, America's great American, uh, their, their version of American exceptionalism. So, so basically, um, they do not realize how well the rest of the world, the rest of the industrialized world has coped with this in this. And they are now in position where they are making arguments which have no relevance and no, um, no credibility. You know, and, and I always admit six weeks ago when I started going on about I think the surge in Florida is coming, I don't like what I see. When they would give me their arguments, I would listen. I would say, look, I think you're wrong. But, of course, they're always very belligerent, right? They're not very nice about their arguments. But, hey, but you might be right. You know, maybe I'm panicking about nothing. Every, every single time. I've been right, or people who have been concerned about this virus are right. The people on the Trump side, on the MAGA side, move the goalposts and come up with some, some new argument. So now the latest is about death rates. And they're not talking about death rates in the general population, because the United States is in the top 10 in the world for deaths, for, uh, deaths from COVID among uh, per 1 million in the population. Okay? And the only major industrialized countries that have more deaths than the United States um, uh, among uh, uh, one million from COVID, among one million of the population are at this point the United Kingdom, whose death rates were astronomical at, at the height of it, and Belgium. Okay, so all the countries that um, that 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 uh, that uh, have similar economies, similar kind of access to resources that we have: South Korea, Japan, Germany, Italy, Spain. Um, you know, you just rattle them all off: the Netherlands. Uh, uh, Denmark, Norway, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those types of Australia, especially Australia and New Zealand, all those types of countries not, not only eradicated the virus sooner, but their, their deaths for uh, one million people are far lower than ours. So um, the, 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 the pushback from the Trump people will be like, oh, well, they were bringing, uh, they were, when Italy was at their height, you know, they, they, the virus ran its course and they got herd immunity and everybody died. Right? Well, no, that's not the case at all. They, they, they have a lot fewer deaths per capita than us. And then now that people like I point that out, they have now changed the metric to say, once again, moving the goalposts, hey, and Trump, it started with Trump himself tweeting this. Um, we, have, we have less deaths per positive test than uh, those countries. But that, you know, you, that, that's irrelevant if it's killing more people in your society per capita because you have that many more cases per capita. Because, again, it's not because we have a larger population. 
that uh, and I want people to understand what you're I want you yeah, people ahead, have to understand what you're saying because what what the conservatives, what the right wing is doing here is is mass confusion. So the 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 amount of people who the death rate, which really isn't a, a statistic that people talk about, but in the population, the general population, if you look at the death rate in the United States, the death rate, people who are dying, it's you know point oh oh something you know because you're you're looking at the whole uh populace now if you look at the case death death rate the case death rate uh because we are getting more cases than anyone else if our case death rate is around 4 to 8% depending on where you live then that is that's that's very very significant because there's not a case death rate in the four to eight uh, percentile, and I've seen as high as 11, uh, there's not a case death rate uh, like that for uh, for the flu, for Christ's sake. But the point you know, for, 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 yeah, yeah, no, you're right. There's nothing like that for the flu or any other illness that they, they talk about. I've even seen them talk about measles and stuff like that, people who don't get vaccinated for measles. But even that .001 or whatever you throw out of the general population, when I'm trying to say it, that number is higher in the United States than it is in any other major industrialized country other than the United Kingdom mm-hmm. and Belgium. And it is higher than most of the developing countries. It is in the top eight in the world. So the only – and uh, number one in the world is Andorra. So, you know, it's a country with 20,000 people. So they have a couple deaths, and, you know, that, that's percentualized. Among large countries, it's far and away the biggest – um, and among major industrialized countries, only Britain, who's got uh, Trump's, you know, cousin, essentially, in the way he governs, and you know, brother, cousin, and Boris Johnson leading that country, and Belgium, who had a particularly bad outbreak. And, you know, in Belgium, if you've been to Brussels or Bruce, people live on top of one another type of thing there. Um, but, yeah, so even that point zero one, Brooke, I'm trying to point out, is higher than any other comparable right. country, with, with two exceptions. And yet they're pointing to that like, oh, well. You know, that shows how well we've done. And then whenever I point out the death, that death rate, then they turn the conversation back to that 4 to 8% and say, well, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's, that, uh, that's lower than certain countries. So, you know, you can never actually have a, 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 a nuanced discussion or a calm discussion with people on the right these days. And um, the thing that makes it so different than uh, the past, these right-wingers have always been uh, – kind of anti-science, they've been into all these kind of um, these fringe theories and fringe ideas. But the thing that now has made it so different is that you actually have the president as the leader. He is essentially uh, sending talking points. It's like back in the post years, the RNC would send talking points to all their elected officials in the morning, right? And the DMC does that too, right? Okay, the parties do that. Now, all these people have to do is they, they check Twitter first thing in the morning. They see what Trump is tweeting, mm-hmm. and that becomes their arguments, and they start repeating it. So the president now is the leader of this, uh, um, this thing. And, you know, in the midst of this, I know before I go, you want to talk a little bit about his, uh, his uh, legal actions this week. Yeah, yeah, because uh, we've talked in the past. So, we're yeah, we're at the top of the hour a little bit after – uh, it, it, he, Donald Trump commuted the sentence of Roger Stone this week, and there was a huge, uh, you know, 
outrage. Uh, Mitt Romney said that that this was the most uh, brazen thing that a president has ever done. And I just wanted to, you know, scream Iran-Contra out the window. You know, like all those people were pardoned. Uh, So what is what is your take on this whole Roger Stone thing? We'll just take a second on this. And then there was uh, the uh, soccer Black Lives Matter, Matter yeah, thing I to t- touch on, too. Actually, uh, the Black Lives Matter, just as we were, you were speaking, uh, Graham Zussi, who's from Longwood, from Seminole County, place for Kansas City, just did a really neat Black Lives Matter thing we'll get to in a minute. But on Stone, um, so Stone is, is, a, is a pretty important player, or was a pretty important player here in, in, in local uh, Broward and Miami-Dade County politics. Uh, in South Florida, and um, Trump uh, commuting his sentence, I think, probably has something to do with uh, a, a need to keep him out of jail to try and help him in, in Florida. And by the way, uh, another decanted Trump huh. tension point is uh, um, Roger Stone ha- is very close to the sugar industry and, and the polluters in the Everglades, and uh, they huh. determined in uh, the Republican primary that DeSantis was an enemy of theirs, which they're correct about, because uh, DeSantis mixes uh, hard right ideology on every other issue with a hard left ideology on Everglades issues <laughs> for some reason and water issues. And, uh, it's a very weird ideological mix, but that is the one issue DeSantis is to the left on. So Stone actually raised about $300,000 to try and take DeSantis out in the Republican pro- pro- primary and fail. This is while Trump himself was supporting DeSantis, which is very weird. But so there's that little piece of tension and, um, you know, I talked about local Democrats in Broward County earlier. I don't want to get too deep into this, but Roger Stone now has become an issue with obviously the primaries next month. Roger Stone and the connection of certain Democrats who have been in office, um, connections to Roger Stone have become issues on mail pieces in Democratic primaries. So I know on the national level, he's a hardcore conservative Republican, a Nixon guy, a Reagan guy. He was an anti-Bush Republican, of course, uh, as part of his uh, – um, falling from the national scene with his fallout with uh, with the Bush family and then reemerges with Trump, um, and he had obviously gone after Elliot Spitzer and, and that that that's infamous. But in South Florida, where he's based, he lives in Fort Lauderdale, and I think everybody knows where he lives because he saw the you know the, the federal marshal coming home out of his house off of Los Olives, uh just outside downtown Fort Lauderdale. Um, he has been a very bipartisan player and operator, if you will. So um, yes. there's some major local implications, and I'll, I'll keep an eye on that as we, as in the next few weeks for, for the listeners because it's, it's fascinating. He is, uh, he is connect, connected to a number of ind- individuals out here. And the reason why he, uh, he was in jail was for it – was, it was for the perjury charge. And what he was doing was he was trying to say that – he had a back channel to WikiLeaks when when he didn't, and then he tried to uh, he, he tried to pin it on Randy Credico, the uh, activist uh, comedian who has a, a radio show. And Credico was like, "No, I wasn't a back channel. You weren't a back channel. Nobody had a back channel." And so this is a this is what the charge was. It was it, which is. Uh, what it blows my mind actually like why is it so important for or why did roger stone uh, go to jail risk going to jail for for a lie like that it is so stupid 
Yeah, and, and I think maybe there was an agreement that he was going to get his sentence commuted. Now, I, I think it's pretty significant, and I don't want to get too deep into this, that Trump, for whatever reason, didn't pardon him. He commuted his sentence, but he didn't pardon him. Um, so, as Robert Mueller said, that stays on his record. Um, but the fact that Mueller was compelled to come out and speak, I think, was pretty significant also. Look, Stone is a really mm-hmm. slimy character, uh, and, and obviously I've had more exposure to him because I'm, I'm in South Florida. Um, but, but actually knew him as a national player and, and was uh, surprised when you know, he moved down here in, in the late 90s. Um, he's a very slimy character. He's an operator. I think the worst thing about Roger Stone is that he has – for many, many years, he and Paul Manafort, who also lives in South Florida, is in jail now, but also lives in this area, from Palm Beach County, lives in Palm, lived in Palm Beach Gardens, um, have been conduits for foreign governments to acquire influence among the Republican Party in the United States. And that, that, that's, to me, the biggest problem. So I don't know how true all the allegations about Russia is, Russia are. I, what I do know is that that is in Roger Stone's wheelhouse, in Paul Manafort's wheelhouse, which makes it more believable to me because I know these two characters, Stone especially. Um, and th- that was their big thing with the curing influence, and generally it would be for right-wing governments, authoritarian regimes. Um, they were very involved in Ukraine uh, in the past, and uh, I, I think it's very natural they would have connections to Putin. Now, um, has everything else been kind of maybe hysterical from the Democrats and they jumped or the Democrats and, and the neoconservative Republicans and they jumped the shark. Maybe. I mean, look, uh, Mitt Romney has some sort of obsession with Russia. We knew that in the 2012 campaign. And, and he, the fact that he, you know, said it's the most corrupt action or whatever a president has ever taken. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. Romney has something about Russia. He might be right, Romney. But I think the overriding thing is Stone has always been a conduit for foreign influence and foreign government. Uh, and he's done a lot of business. Part of the reason he, he was here in, in, in South Florida is because of the ability to, uh, to work with, uh, one, the, um, the, the, the Latin American governments that all you know, tra- do, are, are very transactional and do business here, and particularly right-wing governments uh, that uh, uh, come through here. And two, the heavy, heavy... Um, Russian and Ukrainian community, Eastern European community in South Florida uh, that is uh, very influential politically. And um, I, 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 I may be wrong. I'm, I'm just kind of assuming. I think there were more Russians in South Florida than in any other place in the country. I, just, I, I think that that's probably true, or at least people who have recently moved from Russia and are connected in Russia. Um, and, and this is kind of the epicenter of that. That kind of helps explain the lie in a way. If his brand is to be this back channel, you know, then 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 he was he was trying to protect his brand by saying, "Oh, we look at this big back channel, the WikiLeaks, and they're super important, and blah 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 blah." Yeah, yeah. So it, it that's that kind of makes sense for me. Okay, so. Let's turn to you in the last few minutes. What's the thing? What's going on with Black Lives Matter in uh, Major League Soccer? Yeah, so um, they just kicked off another game at the Wide World of Sports uh, at Disney. And, and uh, I mo- noticed that uh, Graham Zussi, who is from, uh, uh, from Longwood, from Seminole County, uh, has on the back of his shirt, because all the players are writing things on the back of the shirt. And Graham, Graham Zussi, by the way, is white. Um, you know, uh, 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 
prosecute Breonna Taylor's murderers. So even the, the, the players, even the white players, are writing things on their, their kits, on their jerseys, and, and Sharpies, like Black Lives Matter, do this. So it's really kind of neat, that part. So what's happened is that, look, soccer is different than other sports. 90% of soccer fans are, 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 are to the left. I've met more progressives in, in, through soccer than I have through Democratic Party politics. And it's probably because most <laughs> of the Democratic Party politics people are transactional, right? Um, but um, so Major League Soccer taking the stand that they've taken, which is to openly sanction, uh, openly promote and sanction Black Lives Matters and black power displays. And that, that's, I think, an important part of it. And to have on-field protests before the matches – uh, at, uh, obviously, they've restarted in this, in this COVID bubble in, in Orlando and in, in, uh, um, Disney and White World of Sports. Um, there has, before every game, there are players doing the Black Power salute. There are eight minutes and four – is it eight minutes and 46 seconds? Is that the right – whatever the, the – Yes, it is. Boys, the number. Yeah. So every match eight, four, before this match is kicked off uh, – you know, you have all the black players with doing the black power symbol. You have all the white and Hispanic players, you know, other players. Um, again, it's soccer. It's a very international sport. Uh, most of the players are not American, or about half of the players aren't American. Kneeling, doing their thing. Um, and they're all writing these little messages on, the, on their jerseys. And it's been officially sanctioned by the league. The commissioner is a supporter of this, has been working with the players' union to do it. Um, and it's been... A real and all the coaches are wearing shirts that say Black Lives Matter. They're no longer wearing their coaches their shirts with their team logo on it. Obviously, they're all in masks also. Um, and the players all have messages Black Lives Matter things written on their jerseys. Um, very very symbolic of kind of where the left and where soccer fandom is now. That um, soccer fandom has been overtaken. In fact, the, the soccer leagues in Europe. Um, Maybe you can interpret it as a little bit of anti-Americanism, but they're all doing Black Lives Matter, kneeling before games. They got the patch on their sleeves in every team that's playing in England right now, currently after they restarted, every team that played in Germany. Um, but the, 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 the thing I uh, wonder is, again, soccer is a very left sport in this country. My guess is that this is not, there isn't a single conservative that this is reaching, this message. And it, it kind of reminds me, maybe we're all kind of in silos again, because again, I, I will admit, I do not watch American football. I do not care about American football. If it happened before an American football game, maybe it would be more significant um, in terms of general society. But it, it at least shows me that as BLM, the, the, the conversations about BLM in the media have faded among professional athletes or professional soccer players, both in the United States and in Western Europe, it is foremost on what they're thinking and what they're doing, um, which to me is how you sustain a movement, right? Because these are popular kind of mm-hmm. celebrity players. And uh, every match is all about it. Everything they're doing at this tournament. Now, you could argue there are people who are cynically arguing, saying, hey, they shouldn't be playing in Central Florida in the middle of COVID. <laughs> we just spent half an hour talking about the COVID numbers in Florida. That, and that this is just – because they know where their fan base is going to hammer them on that, and their fan base was hammering them on that, including me, that, okay, well, this is very convenient. They know all their fans are, 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 are liberal. They're all progressives. Um, they're more Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren supporters among soccer fans than, I think, than the general public, much higher percentage projection. 
even if that's the case, even there's some, if there's some cynicism involved in it because they want to uh, not be talking about COVID and they want to be talking about BLM instead because they know it's something mm-hmm. that their fans all support, um, I think it means that for the foreseeable future, this sport and probably basketball too, that would be the other one, right? And, and again, basketball and soccer fans tend to lean left. Baseball and football fans tend to lean right. These aren't absolutes, but this is kind of the way it, it's broken down. Um, I think it's going to continue to be the uh, center point, the center focus of so much that goes on in soccer, and I'm going to predict in basketball also when they resume. And this so, is the movement beyond this election is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. And, you know, I thought it was interesting when I posted about this on Twitter to promote the show that some random person that I've never seen before uh, uh, responded because I, I posted the, the, the clip of the, um, of the eight minutes, 47 seconds of the, you know, uh, of that display before the soccer game. And this person who doesn't seem to have like any like MAGA stuff in his, in his timeline. He seemed to be like a Pokemon go person. And I'm going to, I'm going to tie this together. Maybe this makes sense. Uh, he was like, well, enjoy, enjoy your, your coming war. You know? So it was like, you know, you're, you're going to have a civil war over this sort of thing. And I think you got to be careful in social media with, with, uh, uh, accounts that are that seem like standing, like they're standing for one thing. Like for this guy, it was like Pokemon Go. You see a lot of this in sports, where it's like you know I only did, only post on certain sports stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what's another one? Now, what is being done with a lot of uh, accounts that are that marketers use is they will farm accounts for a really long time. In, in, in that rack up a, a lot of posts either in sports or in some form of entertainment, you know, Taylor Swift, this, that, or the other. And then that account gets transferred over to somebody who is doing, a, a, who is a political operative and, and runs like, you know, 20, 50, or 100 of these accounts. And this guy gave me that flavor because I've seen this with, um, uh, with foreign policy, especially with right wingers and Venezuela, you'll see these accounts that are that are. <laughs> I only care about the New York Giants, you know, and, yeah, and but yeah, but somehow yeah. they're just passionate about you know uh, uh, Bolivia or whatever. Right, and some, and some right wing cause, right? I mean, that, that's inevitably what it is. So it's uh, always yeah, a right wing thing. I was surprised by um, or. I shouldn't say surprised. I was um, taken by the number of people after the end of this play you posted, which from uh, the Orlando Miami game, uh, the first night, uh, Thursday night, there've been similar displays in in the few games since then, uh, including the one that just kicked off Kansas city and Minnesota. um, That, that the number of people who said to me that like, you know, that's great. That's your sport. Well, you know, we like American sports and that won't happen in our sport. So if it did happen in an NFL game, then maybe um, it'll have an impact. Or then maybe, unfortunately, it'll, it'll create uh, a, a – look, I, I think 
Trump and his supporters and his advisors want to raise for. I, I'm going to just be flat out, flat out say it. And, and my my concern Thursday night. I mean, and, and I had a dance uh, uh, notice that they were, in fact, you know, I'm talking to some people in the bubble, right? I could, the league I cover um, that this was going to happen, and I was all excited, you know, from my own personal standpoint. But then I realized, you know, well, this this you know, the, the 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 clip you posted. I mean, that could inciting the other side. So this is the problem. We're on tender hooks uh, because uh, we have in, uh, someone in the White House who has no desire to bring Americans together, has no desire to unify Americans, and has every desire to, to, to polarize the country. And you have uh, 40% of the country who, uh, for some reason, do not use their critical thinking skills if they have them. I, I assume everyone has them, right? Um, and with things like Black Lives Matter and then the soccer protests and then uh, coronavirus, they check their critical thinking skills out the door. So I think the bottom line is this is going to intensify and get worse and worse during the course of the next uh, the next few months. And uh, you know, my 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 hope is that um, somehow Joe Biden can avoid um, debating Donald Trump. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Because I, I don't know that, that given the, the way this guy throws and, 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 and pushes buttons and says Sleepy Joe and all this stuff, that getting into a debate with him is worth it. Because what he's going to do is he's going he's to start pushing these racial buttons and these, uh, these, these fake, this absolute myopic stuff that he puts out there during the debate and force uh, Biden to respond. Now, if there are, if there are actually debates, physical debates between Biden and Trump, the moderators better be damn good, okay? Um, and they better put a stop to this, and they better be willing to not think, this guy's the president, I have to respect the dignity of the office and let him ramble, okay? So I think there's a great danger in these debates. I've never said that before. I've always thought that more debates, more exposure, more uh, public appearances uh, uh, is a good thing uh, for, the, for, the, for the public to make decisions. In this case, I, I'm not, if, I, if I'm Joe Biden, I, I'm thinking, do I want to get on the stage with this guy um, at this point? Right. Uh, and right. Th- that, that's my fear. And then you're, you, might be have, you might have like uh, 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 a fascist, uh, you might have all these fascist groups out in the streets uh, after Trump says what, whatever he says in the debate. So I, I have a real concern about violence. And again, uh, maybe it's my disposition as an individual, but I think that violence generally, if there's going to be violence in the streets, it's not going to come from from, from left-wing groups. It's going to come from right-wing groups. And I, and I have that fear that as we get to October and let's say Biden's ahead um, and they have a debate and Trump starts throwing these things in the debate, uh, that it's going to incite people. And so you better have a well, moderator that's going, that's going to stop him from doing that. I think you've really got something there. It's a good place to stop. It's it's a, a I was shocked that that we got that response on on Twitter, and and that indicates to me that there are people waiting out in the wings to start that discourse. And uh, you, you know, I think you're absolutely right. This is something that we have to keep an eye on because uh, it's 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 an ugly world out there. Cardic, thank you so much for coming on, folks. You can find Cardic on Twitter at kkfla737. That's 737, like the airplane, I believe. Uh, or just search Cardic Krishnire on Twitter. Um, 
thank you so much. And uh, we will hopefully have a, a better COVID report next week. Fingers crossed. Yep. Uh, yeah. Fingers All right. crossed. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I'm going to take a tiny little break right here, and then we're going to bring on Janine Maloff. Great talent. I think we got Janine on the line. Janine, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. We're just waiting on Greg to call in. Super duper. Well, Greg, Greg Palast has a new book coming out, and I want to make sure that everybody right. knows that they can uh, go to the show notes, and I've got click here to order Greg Palast's new book, How Trump right. Stole 2020. Uh, they'll take you right to his Amazon page, but I also want to re- remind people that you can find Greg Palast at gregpalace.com and you want to find him there because he's dropping a lot of really good stories lately right right and i'll just go i'll just go into his his introduction right now okay okay sure all right uh well i can wait a minute i mean but basically his his new book is out there how trump stole 2020 the hunt for america's vanished voters it's going to be out actually uh, the 14th in two days. And so he's written extensively on all sorts of voter suppression schemes, among other topics. So we're just waiting for him now. I have been following Greg Palast for many, many years. Uh, it was during the 2004 election uh, with uh, John Kerry and, and John Edwards in Ohio, all of the funny mm-hmm. business in Ohio. That is where I I really got involved in kind of the activism around election integrity. I think that 2001 kind of came and left with us all kind of going, what the hell just happened? You know, with the hanging chads here in Florida and the and right. holding up the election and then the election being decided by the Supreme Court. And so. Right. When we got around to 2004 and we still saw so much of the problem with uh, uh, getting ballots in and checking the ballots and then all the funny business where they were closing down precincts to count the votes and nobody could come in. It was just, 
it was just out was. in the open yes. bizarre. Right. And I, I, I think with I, COVID, it was. Yeah, and with COVID and the uncertainties here, we could be looking at a a catastrophe. But now uh, it looks like Palest is is writing on uh, how how Trump uh, already stole twenty twenty. So I'm real interested to hear how. Right. I'm just going to start with his introduction because I'm sure he'll call in in a minute. Sure. sure. Okay, so Greg Palas is a uh, transplanted American. He's an international journalist. He's known for his insightful, in-depth investigative reporting uh, on Newsnight with the BBC and on the BBC, The Guardian, and Rolling Stone. And his best-selling books include The Best Democracy Money Can Buy and Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. His new book titled How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Managed Voters, will be out July 14th, and you can follow his reports at gregpalace.com. Now, in addition to investigative reporting for The Guardian, BBC Television, Democracy Now!, Rolling Stone, Palast uh, has a bibliography that includes four New York Times bestsellers, uh, including the two books I mentioned. He also co-authored Democracy and Regulation, which the United Nations ILO published and that drew from lectures that he gave at the Cambridge University Department of Applied Economics and the University of Sao Paulo. Um, he also is in very esteemed company along with Oscar Wilde and Jonathan Swift, as he is a patron of the Philosophical Society of Trinity College. And he also received the Global Editors Award for Data Journalism and International Reporter of the Year from the Association of Mexican Reporters. So we're just waiting now for him to call in. Um, and we're no longer waiting. We uh, we oh, yes. have <laughs> Greg Palace on the line. Welcome, Greg. Welcome, Glad Greg. To I'm going to hand you over to uh, Janine, and I'm going okay, to I'm going to go ahead and mute yeah. my own line. Let you guys uh, okay. have at it. Okay. Welcome to the show, Greg. I just Glad gave you a glowing introduction. Um, I heard some of it. I'm gonna, <laughs> I, okay. I'm gonna uh, good, record good. it and give it to my uh, mom. Okay. Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I, I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote. Start off by quoting from your website, and it's from an article you wrote recently too, called "You Are Not Guilty, America. Let's Talk." And you wrote July 6th in 2020 uh, on the subject of voter suppression and the present administration. To quote you, said, "I get it." You're stunned. You elected an orange-stained, gelatinous bag of malicious mendacity, a snorting, porcine pustule, a bloviating bigot, hinged to grasping little griplets, a bloated America, uh, I'm sorry, a bloated ball of gracelessness and crybaby petulance as President of the United States. America, you can stop hiding your face in shame. You are not guilty, end quote. And you go on to explain, and I'll quote you some more, Trump didn't win in 2016. I'm not, and I'm not talking about Trump losing the popular vote. Trump lost the Electoral College. That is, he lost, if you count all the votes, burgled, jacked, swiped, shoplifted, purloined, filched, fiddled, and snatched from citizens not of a whitish orange hue. And unless we wise up, 2020 will be deja vu all over again, end quote. So I'm going to start with that because if anybody's an expert on the tactics of voter suppression that have been used in a wholesale fashion 
by the GOP you are. You've written very extensively on it. So, um, you know, you also wrote in an end note that, quote, Donald Trump was reelected president on November 7, 2018, two years before a single ballot was, was cast. And you also right. stated in your newest book, the purge, not the voters, would reelect Donald Trump. And, you know, you went on again to say in the first chapter of your new book that you had spent, quote, 20 years cracking the code on ballot burglary, schemes with names like cross-check and caging and spoiling, Expo, um, expose one, another pops up like electoral whack-a-mole. Every four years, some new cheat. I just couldn't figure this one out. How are they going to take 2020 until I started tracking a character with a shotgun, a chainsaw, a pickup truck, a dynamite detonator, and a lot of love from Coke Industries on November 7, 2018. It all snapped into place when Chainsaw was elected the 83rd governor of Georgia. Okay, and then you talk about the Persian general, Brian Kemp, as well as the so could you please elaborate? Was Georgia in the race between between um, um, the, the governor there yeah. and Stacey Abrams, was that a trial balloon for the entire nation yes. regarding the POTUS elections, and could you explain a little further? Yes, and as I noted, you left out one word from the book. Brian mm. Kemp, and I'm making fun of his accent for a reason, Brian Kemp became the 63rd white governor of Georgia, and he, oh, he was sorry. running against no, – unless it was left out of the book itself. So, by the way, the book, in case you haven't heard, is called How Trump Stole 2020. And right. believe me, it has been stolen, but you can steal it back. I don't want don't, – uh, don't you dare despair <laughs> because we do have right. a solution here. So don't freak out here, guys. Um, I, I, I'm not. But, Please you know, explain. it is bad. They, they were removing – so a lot of the gimmick is this removal of voters we call the purge. You know that TV show, The, right. the Purger? Once a year, you can run around and kill anyone you want. Well, GOP, Republican secretaries of state, once a year run around and remove all the voters that they want. And Brian Kemp removed a half a million voters at the right. end of 18. Wow. And he was he was run he was Secretary of State. In other words, he's the guy in charge of the elections, in charge of the voter rolls, right. in charge of the voting, in charge of everything. And he's running. Even the while Washington he ran for governor. Right. Even the Wall Street Journal said that was unethical. Oh and so, which is amazing. <laughs> and um, but there's a reason why he could not have won if he didn't use if he didn't have that authority to wipe out sure. the voters of color. Now, dig this. Mm. There were a total. I had. Experts. I hired top experts to go through sure. every name on the list of voters being removed. And I'm not talking about a sample. I'm talking we use computers to go through every person that Brian Kemp wiped off the voter rolls to determine wow. whether it was legitimate. They, he said that they mm -hmm. moved, left the state, whatever. So we had the experts go through name by name, and we found out that 340,134 oh – 340,134 oh. voters, that's a third of a million voters, were wrongly oh removed from the voter rolls. Absolute stone-cold evidence. I then flew down to Atlanta, and you'll see this in the book. I'm in Atlanta. This is where I say, I don't know how he's going to steal 2020. I know I stole 16. Right. I know how they stole right. 2,000. You know, for those who right. know my work, I'm the guy that busted you know, Jeb Bush and Catherine Harris removing thousands of black right. people from the voter rolls. Right. Back in 2000, that's how Bush became president. Well, they played the same trick now, but like on steroids. So I'm down in Atlanta, and there's Raheem Shabazz, a local radio host. He's surrounded polling mm -hmm. station. Ashley Jones, a Latina woman with her five kids, uh, cute little kids with her, thrown out of the polling station. Then comes Christine Ford. 
She's 92 years old. She's been voting at Mm -hmm. that same school in Georgia, in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. for 50 years, 50 years. Mm -hmm. Now, they threw her butt out to saying, you know, you're not registered here anymore. Oh, my God. Now, she's 92. Now, again, um, and you wouldn't be – it wouldn't be a wild guess to say that this is a woman of color. In fact, right. Christine Jordan is Martin Luther King's cousin. She's been voting at that same voting station oh since the year he was assassinated in 1968, and they threw oh. her out. So now I'm going to tell you this. This is important. The reason I wrote – so that's what got motivated me to write How Trump Stole 2020 because then – and I was working Rolling Stone and Salon and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, The Guardian, Washington Post, um, working with a number of outlets because you know this investigation has been going on for seven years. Oh, and a uh, seven-year-long investigation with a team of 15 mm-hmm. people. Greg Palace is the guy that wears the fedora hat, but I just – but that's – there's a whole team behind me. And so we went to Wisconsin, we went to Michigan, we went to Ohio and Florida and Arizona, and we're watching the steel. We're watching the Georgia steel explode everywhere. And so this is how they steal the election. By the way, we can steal it back. The first thing is check your registration. I mean, Christine Jordan was voting the same place 50 years. I don't care how many years you've been voting in the same place. You've never had a problem. This year, you will have a problem. If your name is James Brown, you have a problem. If your name mm-hmm. is Jose Garcia, you've got a problem, okay? Because one of the tricks right. that they're using is a, something called interstate cross-check, where they're saying if you've registered in another state, you lose your vote, right? Oh, you can't register in two states. You can't vote in two states. Well, of course, it's a crime. So what they did right. was – I have a chapter in How Trump Stole 2020 called was 358 James Browns. They took 358 James Browns and wiped out their voting rights because they found, believe it or not, a James Brown in Detroit, a James Brown in Baltimore, a James Brown in Houston. And so the result was that – the result being that all these James Browns lost their vote because they claimed they were the same James Brown. But if you look in the book, I show you the inside documents that I get. Mm -hmm. You know, they try to hide from me. The inside documents show that that they're matching James – Thomas Brown with James Edward Brown and James Brown Jr. supposed to be the same voter as James Brown Sr. So go online right now. While you're listening to me, my friends, go online and you're going to do two things. Number one, you're going to check your registration. I Again, every Secretary of State in every state, except for South Dakota where you don't have to register to vote, uh, every state allows you to check your registration and re-register online on the spot if you're missing and by the way, I, I walked the walk. I checked my registration. It said, Greg Palast, no such voter. And so I registered <gasps> online. So they, I was purged. Uh, Christine Moore wow. was purged. You're going to get – and here's the big one. This is really important. When you talk about mail-in voting, mm-hmm. and I have a whole chapter called Virus Votes for Trump – uh, mail-in mania. Mm-hmm. You have to understand this book is really fresh. Most books you finish a year before publication. I finished mm-hmm. this book three. You know what? I finished this book just three weeks ago. Uh, that's how fast we're wow. moving it because I want to have the latest stuff. Understand if you are missing from the voter rolls, you're if you you won't get a ballot. You can't mail in a ballot if you don't get it in the first place. If it's not mailed to you, right. you can't mail it back. 
people don't understand that. According to an MIT Caltech study, mm-hmm. 22% of all mail-in votes never get counted, one in five. Now, people are saying, well, are you against mail-in voting, pals? No, I'm, a, I'm for mail-in voting, but I'm trying to right. make it so that it can, you can actually do it. You start out by protecting your own vote. Remember, if you're not registered and you don't know if you're registered, anyone listening to me has no idea if they're still registered. 16.7 million people, 16.7 million people removed in the last two years from the voter rolls, one in 12. It could be you. If you're, if, you're, if you're a voter of color, if you're a young person, if you have a common name, you better check your registration now. You're not registered, or they put you on an inactive list. Like if anyone listening to me didn't vote in the 18 election midterm, you better re-register now because they're now – going to call you inactive, and they're not going to send you a mail-in ballot in most states if you are inactive. The Republican secretaries of state are saying if you're inactive, whatever the hell that means, uh, yeah, so you skipped an election. And sometimes you didn't skip an election. You understand, by the way, this is against federal law, but who cares about law in America these days, right? Right. Who's going to enforce the federal law? Bill Barr? Trump's Trump's, uh, toy boy is going to enforce the law? So the law says you can't lose your vote because you decide not to vote on an election, but you will. So you better go re-register right, right. And, now. And, yeah. And one of the things and, oh, that by you the way, talk the second about thing, a lot. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. One of the things you talk about a lot that I think the general public doesn't quite understand is the concept of voter caging. So, for instance, I received one of those yeah. postcards in the mail. And it was just checking to see my address. Was I still living at that place? And when you get this type of a piece of mail from your election board, you think, well, yeah, of course I still live here. A lot of people just leave it alone. They don't bother to check it yeah, and they, mail it back yeah, in. Yeah, they say, oh, this if is you a don't mistake, mail they're... it back in, then they take you off the active voter rolls and you have been purged. And Thank and you they... for saying this. Ladies and gentlemen, and, and... if you get a card – from your board of elections, I know it says it looks like a piece of junk mail. It's a lot of black writing. You've Got to right. fold it and send it back. That's their trick. They don't want you to send mm-hmm. it back. They want you to right. not notice it. Now, there's two things you got to send back. Number one, if they con- need to confirm your address, if you don't confirm, you're going to lose your vote. The second. That's right. And the second thing is, you better keep an eye out for another piece of junk mail. The one that says Do you want a mail-in ballot. If you're not getting it within two months of the election, 60 days before the election, check your registration again. That may be why you're not getting it, or there's lots of reasons. Or you move down the street. Now, the law says you don't have to re-register, but if you don't, you're out of your mind. You're not going to get your ballot. So you've got to get your ballot. Yeah, that's important. Right. Here in my home state of Missouri, in order Mm -hmm. to get a mail-in ballot, like, for instance, during COVID, I've never smoked, but I have COPD. So I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about a mail-in ballot. Well, here in Missouri, they – and our Secretary of State is John Ashcroft's son, by the way. Um, yes. Talk about bad luck, right? Yeah. And so they, they put an extra barrier. You have to get it notarized. Now, if you're too ill or if you are at risk for COVID, the idea that you have to go out in public where Missouri's having a spike in COVID cases, um, once again, you're risking your life to get it notarized so that you can receive you can receive. Um, a, yep, that's a, right. To, yeah, it, it's crazy. And, and it's insane. And in like, fact, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. In, I do talk about that in the book, in the, the states that require, for example, that you literally have to notarize your ballot. Alabama, 
okay, was sued, and the Supreme Court two weeks ago said because Alabama, uh, excuse me, not, Al- Alabama was sued by an organization mm-hmm. like the ACLU, right. which said, look, we must. We, we so and a judge, a lower court judge ruled. Well, I'm not going to ask the people of Alabama to risk their lives by getting in, getting their right. ballot notarized. But the or court said, too bad. That's the that's the rule. So now you're stuck yeah. in Missouri with the same thing, and it's all about making it impossible or difficult well, to vote by mail. Yeah. And what the it other is. problem is when you saw those long lines, and the, again, mm-hmm. they use lines as a weapon. People were in line not because. When you're in Milwaukee and Louisville and Atlanta, African Americans just like standing in line and and catching a virus. These are people, when we talked to the people in line again and again and again and again, they were saying they asked for mail-in ballot, they never got it. About one in ten mail-in ballots that are requested are never received. They have because they've miskeyed your address. And and in urban areas, the post office, 4 to 20% of mass mailings into urban areas with big buildings are never delivered by the post office. Let me say that again. The post office does not fail to deliver 4 to 20% of the mail in urban areas. Oh, my God. Now, if you arrange to get a mail-in ballot and then you don't receive it, and then you go to show up at the poll. Would that be also would they have on record that well you asked for you got a mail in ballot and that's another way for them to turn you away? Yes, there's two things that will happen depending on the state too, and and often it depends on just who's behind the the, the table there. And you know, basically, we have half a million voting systems because it's really up to the person behind the table. And what's going to happen is they'll say, oh, it says that you received a mail in ballot, and you'll say, I didn't get my mail in ballot. Well. Yeah, but here's the deal. And they'll say, oh, don't worry. We're going to give you this provisional ballot. Do, 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 do. Don't go in that water. No, no, no. Let me explain. A provisional ballot is is like, you know, uh, to (laughs) – provisional ballot is to uh, um, voting what, you know, what military music is to music, right? So – Basically, it's, it's a placebo paper. ballot. You get to think you voted, but you haven't or right. may not have. Right. To give you the numbers, in 16, you'll see in How Trump Stole 2020, you'll see mm-hmm. that in 2016, uh, two and a half million people were shunted to these provisional ballots. And just short of a million, like 935,000, were rejected. Rejected. And there's a million reasons. How, Usually they'll say, well, many, if, you, yeah, if you're missing from the voter yeah. rolls and you ask for the provisional ballot, for the most times right. they'll just say, well, too bad. We can give you the ballot, but we're not going to count it. And so how many of those provisional ballots happen in, in precincts that are needed for the electoral count? Ah, here's the trick. Who gets mm-hmm. provisional ballots? Whose ballot gets rejected? Mm-hmm. That's the key one. Whose ballot gets rejected? Remember, I just told you rejections. And I also – here's right. another one. One in ten mail-in ballots is rejected. That is thrown in the garbage. Why? You're missing an outside signature. You're missing a notarization. You didn't put in your driver's license number. You say, well, I don't have a driver's license number. You better put no driver's license there if it's asked for your driver's license in some states. 
and uh, don't leave anything blank. Make sure your signature is exactly as you have it. And by the way, postage due. I don't, you know, in a lot of states you have to put in um, not only one stamp but two stamps. Ohio has a little square for you to put in a stamp. Well, if you put in one stamp, mm-hmm. you mail it in. You just lost your vote for postage due. One hundred thousand people lost their votes for postage due. Now, if it's random, who cares? It's not random. It's not when random. You read how Trump stole 2020, he's stealing it because they underst- he doesn't understand statistics, but his vote thieves understand statistics. Um, and so, therefore, they, they know this. The U.S. Civil Rights Commission, this is in the book, too, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission analyzed the non-vote. Whose votes get thrown in the garbage? They looked at Florida, mm-hmm. and they said the chance that your vote will spoil, that is, be rejected and not counted, is 900% higher if you're black than if you're white. 900% higher. Mm. They're looking out for you. They're looking out. They know your zip codes. They know where you are. Remember, mail-in ballots, not a secret ballot. They know who you are, who's voting, and right. what you're doing. And they don't have to open the ballot to know where you're at. They know, who you, oh, we've got African-American women. And by the way, most states, like Missouri, do actually still have race on, on the registration cards, just so you know. Yes, they do. And they know who you are, and they know your race. They know mm-hmm. your preferences. They know everything. And therefore, the minions with their little with their little uh, handheld uh, computer devices and their smartphones with information are looking out for you to challenge your vote. Don't screw it up. So at the back of how Trump stole 2020, and by the way, um, there is, as you, I'm sure you noticed that there was a comic book in the middle of it, 48-page comic mm-hmm. book by Ted Rall. I think that that's important. Right. And, but at the end, you have Greg and Ted's new improved ballot condom. That's for saving your vote, <laughs> safe voting. Now, right. the ballot condom, no, you don't rip it out and, and, and wrap it around the ballot. What you do is you follow the seven steps in, in how to save your, your vote. And, that, and the first step I've already told you, for gosh sakes, check your registration and then check it again and make sure, you know, so that's step one. And, if, and then, you know, um, things like, Bring the proper ID. Now, Missouri, yeah, I know that you have to have a photo ID, right? Is that correct? To, yes, to vote? Yeah. Now, dig this. Yeah. Did you know that you have to mail in the photocopy of that ID to vote for most new voters? You have to look. Each state is a little different. Let's see how Missouri is mm-hmm. handling this. But you're going to lose. If you can fill out everything and get it notarized and all that wonderful stuff, and then if you're, especially if you're a first-time voter, uh, you mm-hmm. better put in that ID, a photocopy of your ID. And then they play tricks. Um, and, and I, by the way, bring ID, if you're listening and you're not in Missouri, um, even in states that, that don't ask for ID, are you ready for this? 67% of African-American males are asked for their ID, even in right. states that don't ask, that are not supposed to ask for ID. I had my so friend Jerry the others, Quickly, the, the, the great hip hop artist. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the. So then, uh, so one is is check your registration. Number two is when you go postal. It says don't don't just pick and lick. Don't just pick the candidate and lick the stamp. You better follow the rules. Mm-hmm. That includes having your your photo voter ID that goes in, and make sure that you ask, like I say, at least two months in advance for your absentee ballot. Look out for that little card. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't mm-hmm. get spoiled rotten. That is, make sure that you are very careful filling out your ballot, your absentee ballot or any ballot. 
Don't put mm-hmm. a check where it says fill in the bubble. Don't put an X. Don't put a smiley right. face. Don't put uh, you know. Don't use don't use a red pen. Don't use a pencil. Don't use lipstick. By the way, when I was in Michigan looking at ballots that were thrown out, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised. People use crayons, all kinds of crazy oh stuff, and then you lose your vote. Now, so you know. And by the way, it's not a few votes. According to the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, which tracks votes and mm-hmm. non-votes, mm-hmm. 1.9 million ballots were thrown out as spoiled, rejected. Again, mostly African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American right. young voters. You're the ones that right. get your votes thrown out, so you better be careful, careful, careful. I always tell – and if you do go in precinct, obviously, be very careful – Bring an ID even if you think you don't have to have one. And by the way, if you're a student in Wisconsin, don't just bring your student ID because you can't vote with that student ID. If you bring your gun, you can bring your gun permit but not your student ID. Now, if you're going to use a student ID, mailing it in or showing up, are you ready for this in Wisconsin? You can use your student ID, but then you have to also enclose a letter showing proof of current enrollment in your college. Why? Hmm. Why it is going whether you have enrolled or not this week does not mean does it, the idea is to the point of an idea is to prevent someone from impersonating you. So if, if the idea is good, why do you need to prove you're enrolled? Why do you need an act? For example, Indiana threw ten nuns out of a polling station because they had they had photo voter photo ID their driver's licenses, but the driver's licenses hadn't expired had expired, but the nuns who hadn't expired, but they were in their 80s and 90s. They didn't drive, but they still had the ID. Now, why do they do the ID laws? It's in the book. 50,000 black people in Milwaukee and area did not have a driver's license to vote in the 2016 election. 50,000 African Americans lost their vote because who doesn't have that driver's license? Well, duh, people who don't have cars don't own cars and use public transportation and live in urban areas in apartment buildings and so they don't need a driver's license or don't can't afford a car so who are those people they're the young urban dwellers african-americans hispanics in other words voters of color and the color is blue it's that simple they stole wisconsin trump supposedly won wisconsin you'll see in the book by 10,700 votes while they're excluding 182,000 student voters, that's number one, and, and then excluding 50,000 African-American voters, you tell me who'd won. And they're trying to knock off more of these voters. Trump swiped Wisconsin. He swiped Michigan. He swiped Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Arizona, and they're trying to steal Georgia, which – is a minor, it's a white minority state, the first in the deep south. How come – how in the world are Republicans winning in a white minority state? The yeah. answer is by not allowing the minorities to vote. Right. Greg, we have only about 60 seconds left. Can you give just some parting thoughts? Your, your information is so important. Um, yes. So, is so any for more info, more info, go to gregpalace.com. Uh, get how Trump stole 2020. If you get it this week, and you send me like a receipt, like a you know, with a cell phone or a or a screen grab from wherever you get it, your local bookstore, Amazon, whatever, whatever you do. I will send anyone because I want to support your program and I want people to say they got something out of this. I will send okay. you a free 
audiobook version of How Trump Stole 2020. Oh, and wow. if you go to gregpalace.com, you get the info to go to our Facebook Live event. Uh, Amy Goodman, Noam Chomsky, and Latasha Brown, founder of Black Voters Matter, with Greg Palace, will be discussing How Trump Stole 2020, my new book, um, uh, with comics by Ted Rawl. So gregpalace.com, G-R-E-G-P-A-L-A-S-T. Dot com. Is that enough? Thank you so yeah, Thank you. We're, we're already off, unfortunately. We were okay. out of time. Um, but I do thank you. You just have so many insights. And anytime you want to show, anytime you want to come on board, you're more than welcome. Well, you guys are fantastic. So join us. Awesome. Uh, by the way, join me uh, 7 p.m. Eastern for the, with Noam and, and Amy, and we'll have some fun. Oh, send me an email. I'd love to do it. Okay, you got me. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Janine, thank you so much for that interview. Uh, the uh, Before we went off the air, I think people on the podcast will be catching this, but uh, you've got some information to get a free audio book from uh, Greg Palast if you follow his instructions and uh, let him know that you heard about it through the show. So awesome stuff. I am going to just uh, throw some intro music or outro music at you and say goodbye until next week. Mm-hmm.